Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. John Lennon was a musical genius and one of the most beloved cultural figures of the 20th century. His songs inspired dreamers to imagine. His search for the truth gave power to the people. But some thought he dreamed too much. Others thought he was too powerful. So he was followed, he was threatened, he was declared a danger to the United States. And in 1980, he was assassinated. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Jim Steele with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 009-08-0491. Case subject is Lennon, John Winston Ono. This information pertains to a period ending December 1980. Interview subject is Caulfield Holden. Interview number 1-11-519-86. Spirit confessional. Recall number 2. December 8, 1987. Now, say what you want about John Lennon. He may have proven himself a hypocrite when it came to how he dabbled in politics and protests. He may have said, near the end of his life, that he only got involved with John Sinclair and Jerry Rubin and all those other princes because he was so goddamn rich and he felt guilty about it. Maybe he wanted to prove that he was a working class hero after all even if he was as much of a working-class hero as I am Jesus Christ himself. And speaking of Jesus Christ, John Lennon certainly wasn't the first famous person to take the Lord's name in vain, and that's a goddamn fact. So why get sore about it? Why get sore about a guy who changes his mind? Why get sore about a guy who isn't the same guy he was ten years before? Do you know how many times I've changed my mind? Do you know how many things have come out of my goddamn mouth that aren't true? I mean, I lie like a dog. Sometimes, I can't even help myself. I, I just start lying, and I can't stop. Sometimes, I can't even tell what's water under the bridge and what's blood on the tracks. Now, if you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is whether or not Mark David Chapman walked through that door, whether he became somebody, became me, for Christ's sakes, the way he believed he would and all that Harry Houdini kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it, if you want to know the truth. It seems as though that kind of stuff always happens right before Christmas, that madman stuff. It's supposed to be a joyful time of year, the holidays. That's what they tell you, at least. They don't tell you how lousy it can be. All the singing, 
and the phony smiles and the phony cheer. And if you're back east, back in New York City, it's goddamn cold too. And then some crummy bastard like Mark David Chapman goes and makes the season that much worse. He wanted to prove. Look, I know all about the son of a bitch, okay? I know how he was obsessed with my story. He was obsessed with me. And he didn't just want to be like me, you know, dress like me and talk like me and all that. He wanted to become me. And that's a goddamn fact. I mean, talk about missing the whole concept of unreliable narrator, right? Even I know that I'm not somebody you want to be, and I am me. Even if I was somebody that somebody else wanted to be, how would you even start? He thought he could aim a gun at a famous singer, pull the trigger, and what? He would transform on the spot? He would be transported into the goddamn pages of the dog-eared paperback he was carrying? I got a real bang out of that one, I'll tell you. I mean, can you imagine? First of all, old Chapman thought John Lennon was a phony. John Lennon. Say what you want about John Lennon. Now, I didn't go in for all that bubblegum pop music stuff, but the Beatles had a few songs that really knocked me out. I mean, they were all more authentic than Herman's Hermits or any of the boring groups that came over from England after them. Those groups were just, I don't know, depressing. Because even if the song was catchy, you'd get around to listen to the words, and you'd be so bored you could just vomit. But John Lennon? He was a witty bastard. I Am The Walrus? I mean, that song is nuts. He was also a real cut-up guy in person, too. You know, you'd see him on those late-night talk shows, chewing the fat with those hotshot hosts, you know, like Dick Cavett and, uh... What's his name? Mike Douglas? Yeah. Old Lennon was actually funny and smart. Sure, he got in over his head when he tried to dabble in politics, but but he was just trying to do the right thing, you know? And he did come clean about it when he said he only got involved because he felt lousy for having so much dough. Maybe he wanted to prove that he was a working-class hero after all. Even if he was as much of a working-class hero as I am Jesus Christ himself. Say what you want. And speaking of Jesus Christ, John Lennon certainly wasn't the first famous person to take the Lord's name in vain, okay? That's a goddamn fact. Jesus Christ. So why get sore about it? Why get sore about a guy who changes his mind? Why get sore about a guy who isn't the same guy he was 10 years before? Do you know how many times I've changed my mind? Do you know how many things have come out of my goddamn mouth that just aren't true? Why get sore? I mean, I lie like a dog. Sometimes, sometimes I can't even help myself. I just start lying and lying and I can't stop. John Lennon may have been a lot of things, okay? A rock star, a recluse, a prophet for the people, an enemy of the state, A husband, a father, an artist, a dreamer, the walrus. Working class hero. Maybe he was a liar too, but he wasn't a phony. Mark David Chapman, now there's a phony. Hypocrite. There's a guy who thinks he's doing the world a favor. A guy who thinks he's got all the answers, that he is the answer. 
A guy who thinks his disappointment and his rage is unique. I mean, are you kidding me for Christ's sakes? Chapman wasn't special, okay? No more special than anyone else. And he wasn't just a phony, he was a coward. He shot John Lennon in the back. You can't get more yellow than that. Now, I don't hate too many guys. And that's a goddamn fact. There are some guys I hate for a little while. Sometimes I feel like I'm surrounded by jerks. I don't know. Stradlater from Pensy Prep. That's in Agerstown, Pennsylvania, by the way. You've probably heard of it. The place runs those advertisements of some guy on a horse jumping over a fence. Like, all we did at Pensy Prep was play polo. I never once saw a horse near that place. Anyway, Stradlater, that prince, and Robert Ackley. I've hated both of them once in a while, okay? But then time would pass, and I wouldn't see him for a while, and my anger would fade. And then I'd find myself actually missing the bastards. <laughs> but I hate this Mark David Chapman guy. I don't think anyone would ever even miss him. He's like a goddamn actor. Actors never act like people. They go out to Hollywood and, and they prostitute themselves. They really do make me puke. I'm, I'm not kidding. Mark David Chapman, though, he's even worse than a Hollywood actor. God, it makes me feel depressed just thinking about it. Because Mark David Chapman thought he could pull that one over on everybody. That he could be somebody, for Christ's sakes. He thought he could be me. That he would be me. Maybe he wanted to prove So ironical. The only door he walked through was a goddamn cell door at Attica. He refused to eat, so the guards had to force feed him. And it was all phony. Because do you know what Mark David Chapman really was? He was a goddamn dirty moron. That's what he was. And he was evil. Do you believe in evil? If you don't, or you're not sure, just look at him. Look at the guy. Look at his eyes. Listen to his voice. Hear what he's saying. You'll hear it. Pure evil. It's not just New York City, okay? This whole world is lousy with phonies. They're everywhere. New York, Hollywood, Pennsylvania, Hawaii, even London, England. John Lennon knew that, maybe more than anyone else in the world. John Lennon hated phonies. The phony bastards gave him some award, right? This medal from the Queen in England. People say it's aces, this medal. But those are the same people who get a kick out of shooting the bull all day. So what did John do? He sent it back. Certainly wasn't the first famous person. He told the queen he didn't want her crummy medal. He didn't like what her country was doing. Getting involved in other countries, Nigeria or Biafra or somewhere, I don't know. I don't really pay much attention to that sort of thing. But John did. So why get sore about it? John said that society was run by insane people for insane objectives. 
that countries were run by maniacs for maniacal ends. He said if anyone could put down on paper what our government is doing, what the American government is doing, the Russians, the Chinese, what they're actually trying to do, what they think they're doing, he said he'd be very pleased to know what they all thought they were doing. Look at this country, John's adopted country. As soon as he came over here and started living in New York, he launched a tirade against phonies. Say what you want. Give me some truth, he said. Give peace a chance. He said, look, here's peace. You can buy and sell and trade peace on the goddamn open market just like you buy and sell and trade war. That made sense to me. Say what you want. I'm not really a tough guy either. I'm a pacifist, if you want to know the truth. But did you know what happened when John Lennon told us war was over if we wanted? Nobody wanted to hear about it. So he went and got himself good and drunk for a long while, and then occupied himself with family life, just to escape all the phonies. Isn't the same guy he was? This country couldn't be bothered to give a good goddamn. Just a month before old Chapman, that coward son of a bitch, shot John dead on a sidewalk in this dirty city, the country went and elected this guy, Reagan. That killed me. Really, it did. And that's a goddamn fact. Reagan. I mean, talk about a phony. The guy's an actor. Literally. You all see that movie Bedtime for Bonzo that came out the same year my book did? Bedtime for Bonzo. More like bedtime for democracy. Reagan was just another one of those Hollywood prostitutes. I mean, don't even get me started. He's not a real person. And yet the majority of Americans thought that a phony Hollywood prostitute would be best to serve in the highest office of the free world. Like I said, I could care less about politics and all that. But you didn't have to be a goddamn political scientist to see what was going on. Reagan thought Lenin's murder was street crime, a random act of violence. And he used it as proof that the country didn't have a gun problem, it had a street crime problem. The street criminal, the drug pusher, the mobster, the corrupt policeman, public official, they form their own criminal subculture. They contribute to and they prosper in a climate of lawlessness. They need each other, they use each other, they protect each other. I mean, read between the lines. To Reagan, there were people who mattered and people who didn't. People who belonged and people that didn't. The United States of America was being remade for a very particular type of person. Morning in America, my ass. Welcome to the 1980s. Of course, it was some of the phoniest bullshit ever peddled by a sitting president, but what do you expect from an actor? I mean, Jesus Christ. If you think about it too much, it'll really depress you. And then Reagan went and got himself shot. Just a few months after John was assassinated. And shots were fired, apparently at President Reagan, as he was coming out of the Washington Hilton Hotel this afternoon. Six bullets in two seconds. This real prince, John Hinckley, was the guy that did it. He was just as much of a lunatic as our guy Chapman. He just started shooting into a crowd. The president's entourage, he shot a cop, a secret service agent. He got the press secretary in the head. And all those other princes, 
His last bullet bounced off the president's limo and caught Reagan under his arm. It went into his lung and just missed his heart, for God's sake. Hinckley thought he was going to impress Jodie Foster, another phony actor. She'd been in this movie, Taxi Driver, where she plays a prostitute and some crazy vigilante kills her pimp and thinks he saved her from a life of exploitation. And I guess that, in Hinckley's mind, he thought he was going to suddenly become a part of Jodie Foster's life by shooting the goddamn president of the United States. Just like Chapman thought he was going to become me. Jesus Christ. I mean, you can't make this shit up. Jesus Christ. Lunatics, morons, crummy bastards. They're always ruining everything. Do you know what John Lennon really had planned? What he was going to do in 1981 and in 1982 and in 1983? What he was going to do in 1999, in in 2010. Well, first, he was going to show up at the Clash's 17-night stand at Bond's Casino over on Broadway in the summer of 81. That was going to be how he got pulled back into the limelight, back into the public eye, you know, and back into politics. I'm serious. Sure, Joe Strummer sang all about phony Beatlemania and no Elvis, Beatles, or the Rolling Stones, But he always let John off the hook. Joe looked up to John, idolized him even. John's all right, he always said. And so it would make perfect sense at the time in 1981 for old John to appear on stage with Joe and the Clash, just like he had appeared on stage with Elton years before. And John would have fun with it, you know? He would come out on stage to the opening chords of London Calling, and he'd even sang along with the phony Beatlemania line cheeky bastard because John knew that Beatlemania was phony rock and roll music was a lot like Hollywood a bunch of phonies prostituting themselves and being on stage again at that oversold club in front of thousands of New Yorkers singing Joe's songs of defiance he would know that he goddamn John Lennon was potentially crossing over into phony territory himself but Joe Strummer and The Clash would throw him a lifeline. Do you know how many things have come out of my goddamn mouth that aren't true? Meanwhile, Reagan would be calling the Soviet Union the evil empire while this whole Cold War thing was heating up. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. They were setting up strategic missiles in space, for Christ's sakes, and world annihilation was around every single corner. Sure, I know what I said in that book. I'm sorta glad they've got the atomic bomb invented. If there's another war, I'm going to sit right the hell on top of it, and all that. But like I said, do you know how many times I've changed my mind? This was serious. I mean, even I got a little nervous. But old John Lennon, he wouldn't have been able to take it anymore. He would have put peace back out in the marketplace again. He would have dusted off his bullhorn, his handmade signs. Like a dog. He would have rallied his people again, much to the dismay of that lousy Reagan, who didn't have a legal reason to eject John from the country the way that Nixon had a decade earlier. 
John would have been terrified of impending nuclear destruction, and he would have wanted everyone else to be terrified into action alongside him. He'd need a groundswell of support, strength in numbers, and all that. And so, to entice the American people to stand with him, to stand against fear and corruption, he would have given everyone a reason to give a good goddamn this time around. John would have bought up billboard space all across the country, from Times Square to Sunset Boulevard, to stump for the support of his fellow man. I mean, I'd lie like a dog. They were going to march on Washington. They were going to demand change. They were going to look Reagan in his goddamn lousy face and demand change. And I can't stop. It would have been the biggest mass protest in the history of the United States in 1986. And John's billboards would promise a reward that no one would be able to resist. Show up, raise your fist, join the march, call for the end of Reagan's fear-mongering, and John was going to deliver the first live concert from the Beatles in nearly 20 years. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Now, evil doesn't just go away simply because no one is paying attention to it. Believe me, evil is always there. That madman stuff is never truly gone. And that's a goddamn fact. So, in 1986, while Ronald Reagan was focused on the evil empire, and John Lennon was focused on the evils of Ronald Reagan, the evil that is that crumb-bum Mark David Chapman still had his sights on John Lennon. If we're talking about what would have happened had John never died, then that means that Chapman never would have actually followed through with shooting John in 1980. Let's say he got cold feet, right? Hopped on a plane back to Honolulu. But he still thought about it all the time. He still thought about little else than shooting John. He would close his eyes at night, the jerk and visualize walking up behind John with his charter arms pistol. Guy who isn't the same guy. Some people go to sleep counting sheep, or really giving it to someone, you know? Mark David Chapman would go to sleep murdering John Lennon, the bastard. For six years he would have done that. Every night, he'd hear that voice in his head. John Lennon. The one that just said over and over, the phony must die, said the catcher in the rye. The phony must die, said the catcher in the rye. Freaking goddamn lunatic. John Lennon. He wouldn't say anything to his wife about it either. Oh no, on account of he didn't want her alerting the authorities. He knew he was going to murder John Lennon and he wasn't about to be stopped. John Lennon. It was only a matter of time. John would have been all over the news again. He'd be making new music, some of the best music in his solo career. His songs would be of political and social importance again. And he'd even use The Clash as his backing band on a record he released called Revolution 84. Why get sore about a guy who isn't the same guy he was 10 years before? The record would be so goddamn popular that it knocked Thriller down a peg. And don't you dare say cut the crap to me, okay? 
This is an alternate reality from what you people in the so-called real world know. So The Clash stayed together and they backed John Lennon and continue to be the only band that matters for many more years. Anyway, John's billboards were all over the place, right? Even got some billboards way down in Honolulu, Jesus Christ. And there they were, just staring Chapman in his lousy face. Soon enough, John was being interviewed most nights by the major news networks because he had very publicly hitched his wagon to that great peace march for global nuclear disarmament. They were a grassroots organization that was in the middle of a nine-month walk from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. Now, John was by far the walk's most famous participant, even if he didn't do the entire 3,700-mile walk, only the last little bit. Because he still had a little bit of phony in him, right? Maybe he wanted to prove that he was a working-class hero. Anyway, he and Yoko were with the group for a few weeks, Enough time to really raise its profile, you know? And by the time they reached Washington, D.C., the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament was millions strong. I'm serious. You should have seen the goddamn thing. The streets were alive. Sometimes I can't even help myself. And just as promised, when the group got to D.C. in November and stood outside the White House chanting for Reagan to stick his crummy head out the door, so many of them that traffic was completely choked up for miles in every direction, just as promised, the Beatles appeared. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I don't know exactly how they got the goddamn permit to do it. They probably just did it, you know? 50 million Beatles fans can't be wrong, right? <laughs> they set up a riser on the lawn of the White House and played for about 90 minutes. Like a dog. They did Revolution, of course, as cheesy as it sounds. And they did Get Back. And this one song that really knocked me out, I Want You, She's So Heavy. That's about as far from that I Want to Hold Your Hand garbage as you can get, huh? Jesus Christ, they played I Want You for close to 20 minutes alone. Just that same drone on and on. And you know that the longer they played that one song, the more insane it drove old Ronnie Kid inside the White House. The dog. The people in the crowd went berserk. I've never seen that many people gathered in one place before, let alone that many people losing their minds like that. The goddamn Beatles. They said it would never happen again, but it did and millions witnessed it. And I can't stop. And old Reagan felt like a prized horse's ass, which was the point. The masses were right. The masses were good. And the masses were going to take over the country right there. But nothing that is right and good has ever been easy. You know that. Once the concert had ended, John, once again looking to prove he was a man of the people, walked off stage and into the crowd. So goddamn rich, and he felt guilty about it. He was flanked by a small entourage. The entourage was moving him through the audience, and ideally, they'd move him right past the Secret Service men who would allow for a monumental face-to-face -face between Ronald Reagan and John Lennon. The press had been talking it up for weeks. Reagan and Lennon, a summit of epic proportions. John was moving slowly, 
because he was stopping so often to shake hands, accept hugs, and take photos with fans in the press. And no one noticed Mark David Chapman. Because Mark David Chapman was the kind of guy that never got noticed. Say what you want. There was no reason to notice him. He shaved his hair into one of those mohawks, you know? Kind of like De Niro's in Taxi Driver, that Travis Bickle character who inspired that lunatic Hinkley in the first place. But also the kind Joe Strummer wore in the liner notes of the Revolution 84 album, so nobody even looked at Chapman twice. Chapman knew, just like the whole world knew, where John Lennon was going to be that day. Washington, D.C., the White House. Chapman knew where, and he knew when. He had flown into New York the day before, and now he was there. Another anonymous face in the crowd. I just start lying. Chapman began to cut a line through the sea of people, right? And make his way towards the stage, towards John. As John's path bent further from the stage and closer to the White House, so too did Chapman's path veer to follow. Chapman got closer. So close, he could hear John's voice in conversation with the people around him. Chapman pulled down the zipper of his jacket to open it up. He kept walking, and his fat shoulders kept shoving into the backs and heads of people nearby. Then he slowly stuck his hand inside his jacket and felt the Charter Arms pistol nestled in a pocket. That's when people began to notice him. One of the guys flanking old John spotted Chapman with his hand in his jacket and knew what was about to happen next. He yelled out, watch that guy, and pointed directly at Chapman. Another lunge for Chapman and tried to grab him by the shoulders. He's got a gun, someone shouted. Chapman panicked. He began ranting out loud like a raving lunatic, which he was, ranting over and over that the phony must die. The other Beatles had long since ducked for cover, hidden behind this person or that, and John was literally being whisked away at the very moment when Chapman wrenched the pistol from inside his jacket, pointed it into the teeming chaos, and fired four times. And that's all I'm going to tell you about that. I can't even help myself. I could probably tell you what happened next in this particular version of what could have been. You know, who was shot, who died, who lived. But I don't feel like it. I really don't. That stuff may interest you, but it certainly doesn't interest me too much right now. Look, I'm sorry that I talked so much about it. I'm sorry I told you all these things that didn't actually happen. The things that would have happened had John not been shot on that December evening in 1980. But the whole thing doesn't even turn out the way you think anyway. It'd just depress the hell out of you, for Christ's sakes. Trust me. I know. August 2020, Alden, New York. Mark David Chapman sat before the parole board at the Wendy Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison located just east of Buffalo. 
At 65 years old, Chapman's hair was thinner than it had been in years past. His leathery skin hung desperately to an elongated neck below his chin. In his 40 years behind bars, he'd gone on hunger strikes, shaved his head, and violently destroyed state property. These days, his tact was less deranged instability and more quiet acceptance. He said a little prayer to himself under his breath shortly before the parole board began its review. He knew it amounted to little more than hot air. People rarely listened to Mark David Chapman anymore, not even God. The parole board, on the other hand, they were legally obligated to listen to Chapman every two years. It was the 11th time Chapman had made a bid for freedom. Every two years since the year 2000, when he first became eligible for parole in the course of his 20 years to life sentence, Chapman had made the case that he was a changed man. He saw the error of his ways. He knew what he did was wrong. He was ashamed. He had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He wanted to walk out beyond the walls of the prison and spread the good word. He had a wife waiting for him out there, a wife who had stuck by him the entire time he was on the inside, first at Attica and then in upstate New York at Wendy, where he'd been ever since 2012. But Chapman's wife would have to wait a little while longer because waiting for him at his parole hearing was the same thing that was always waiting for him at all of his parole hearings. In this thing, took precedence over any of Chapman's own personal wants and desires. A statement from John Lennon's widow, Yoko Ono. Naturally, Yoko opposed the parole of her husband's killer. Yoko expressed concern for her safety and the safety of her family. She was also concerned for the safety of the assassin himself who may find himself at the mercy of grieving, angry Beatles fans if he was ever released. But mostly, Yoko didn't want that dirty rat fuck to ever taste another breath of freedom for as long as he lived. Enjoy the rest of your insignificant life, shitbird. And so, for the 11th time, Mark David Chapman asked for another chance. And for the 11th time, Mark David Chapman was denied. Just months later, in December of 2020, Fans of John Lennon and the Beatles gathered in a 2.5-acre section of New York Central Park known as Strawberry Fields. Named after one of John's most beloved Beatles songs, this section of Central Park is dedicated to John's memory, as well as to the universal ideals of peace and love. The centerpiece of the area features a mosaic on the ground with one word written inside, Imagine. It was December 8th. The fans had gathered in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic to commemorate the 40th anniversary of John's assassination. They wore face masks and socially distanced themselves at six feet apart. They placed flowers, candles, photos, and letters to John over the circular mosaic while fighting back tears. They played guitars, sang songs, and did what the one word written inside the mosaic inspired them to do imagined. They imagined what it would have been like had John Lennon lived. They imagined a world that gave peace a chance. They imagined a society that, to paraphrase Dave Marsh in a Rolling Stone magazine, stopped seeing people as symbols and started seeing them as people. Admittedly, it was hard to imagine such things. Peace over war, love over hate, optimism as the default human condition. It all felt like 
fantasy, unattainable. John Lennon had shown the world that it was possible. It was all possible if you wanted it. No one wanted it. The people at Strawberry Fields on that cold December day wanted it though. They kept imagining it because without that ability to imagine, without hope, all that's left is fear, destruction, and blood on the tracks. All right, everybody, thanks for listening to Blood on the Tracks. If you like what you hear, be sure to find and follow Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this season two of Blood on the Tracks, we'll be releasing 10 episodes on the incredible life of John Lennon, with a new episode every Thursday. You can also binge all 10 episodes of season one on the insane story of the notorious record producer, Phil Spector. Right now, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. This episode was mixed by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This episode featured Travis Dowdy as Holden Caulfield. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you want to chat about this show or hear more about the other shows we're making at Double Elvis, tap in on Instagram at Double Elvis, on Twitter at Double Elvis FM, and now on Twitch where we're streaming three days a week at twitch.tv slash Double Elvis Podcasts. And finally, be sure to check out Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland, or if you have an Echo device, just say, Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. Rock and roll. Oh, dang it.